Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. What did Jesus really teach about divorce? Well, on today's program, we continue our current series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. So let's open our Bibles and learn about divorce and the will of God. Matthew 5, 31 to 32, only two verses in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, and yet it remains one of the most discussed and controversial teachings of Jesus. You know, as a teacher here at Back to the Bible, I've received many letters asking me to give my views on divorce and remarriage. And as a pastor, the issue has come up repeatedly during my career. It's impossible for anyone to be in pastoral ministry today without dealing with this subject frequently. What does the Bible teach on this matter? Well, let's read what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, we have been noticing that Jesus has given us a clue as to how his sermon should be interpreted. Back in chapter 5, verse 17, he makes clear that he has not come to abolish the law, and so we have to assume that his foil, or what he is taking issue with, is not the law itself, but rather the pharisaical misinterpretation of the law. So when he said, you have heard it said, he's not primarily referring to what the law said, but rather what the Pharisees taught about the law. You know, in a sense, the situation in Jesus' day was not unlike our own today. You know, a great many people, when discussing the Bible, really don't talk about the Bible at all, but rather what their favorite Bible teacher says about the Bible. See, in the same way, Jesus is reflecting back what would have been common in most people's minds. They knew what their favorite Bible teachers were saying about various Bible passages. So as a way of starting, let's notice what the law actually says about divorce, and then what the Pharisees taught about the Old Testament commands about divorce, and then what Jesus said about divorce. And finally, even though we don't have time to talk about it, I'm going to mention the wider New Testament teaching on divorce as well. So let's start with the Old Testament law. I'm reading Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it into her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that would be an abomination before the Lord. Now, I want you to notice something that's inherent in this text, but something that was badly misinterpreted by the Pharisees. According to Matthew 19, verses 7 to 8, Jesus is having a dispute with the Pharisees about the issue of divorce. Verse 7 records them as saying, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, no doubt from the perspective of the Pharisees, the chief issue in Deuteronomy was this. What is the nature of the indecency that a man may find in his wife which demands a divorce? They want Jesus to give his interpretation on what Moses meant when he speaks of a husband finding an indecency in his wife. 
And Jesus immediately takes issue with the Pharisees. He says, and I'm reading from verse 18, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. I hope you caught that. The Pharisees were speaking about how indecency demanded divorce, and Jesus spoke about how indecency permitted divorce. Nothing demands divorce if there's repentance, renouncing of sin, and reconciliation. Nothing. And so for Jesus, the entire issue was hardness of heart either in terms of open sin or an unwillingness to repent or an unwillingness to reconcile when there was genuine repentance. For Jesus, there was no divorce mandate, and this was central to the issue. And of course, that's exactly what the law of Moses said. Divorce was granted as a necessary concession. The ethical ideal is marriage for life. God designed marriage from the beginning as a bond to be broken by death alone. Now let's get back to Deuteronomy 24. What's of note here is the certificate of divorce. In ancient days, marriages and divorce were not official government matters. They were domestic matters. Therefore, in the ancient world, when a man divorced his wife, all he needed to do was to tell her he's divorcing her, and then they were divorced. Nothing official at all. And then came the law of Moses, and it mandated the man put the matter in writing. It was a form of protection for the woman. The law demanded the man state his reasons, what indecency he had found in her. She could not be discarded for inadequate reasons, nor could she be divorced on a whim, and then on a whim again, he would take her back, playing a kind of ping pong with her. And so three things came into play. The first was that the man had to provide adequate grounds. He could not divorce her on an impulse. And then second, It provided the woman with a legal document so that if she should remarry, she could not be accused of adultery. She had a document that stated that her previous marriage was no longer valid. You see, most divorced women would have been forced to remarry, for it was the only way that they could take care of themselves. And even though divorced without a certificate, a jealous husband might arise and accuse her of adultery. But her certificate, that was her protection. Now, a third matter that protected her is that the original husband could not take her back. Divorce was seen as final, and this fact slowed the process down and forced the husband to seriously consider what he was about to do. You do this, and you can never, for the rest of your life, undo this, no matter how you regret this deed. It is permanent. So the law realized you couldn't stop a divorce, but you could make the matter a very sober business and demand that you think about it. Isn't the purpose of God that the two should be one for life? And by the way, I grew up in a Canada in which it was very hard to get a divorce. Divorce was granted on the ground of adultery and cruelty, what we might now call abuse. And outside of that, if a husband were struggling to get along with his wife and he sued for divorce, a Canadian judge was very likely to give the couple a lecture in his courtroom. And he'd tell them to go home and learn to live as husband and wife. The two would hear from a secular Canadian judge that marriage is the bedrock for a stable society. And so this was more than just about the two of them. This was about the future of the nation and of the next generation. How very different the world has become within the space of one generation. See, in Canada today, if one files for a divorce and the other opposes it, the divorce is always granted. 
Furthermore, we now have no-fault divorce where no grounds for divorce are required at all. All that's required is some equitable manner of dividing up assets and children. See, I hope you see how very different the Old Testament law was. Now, at the time of Jesus, instead of realizing this intent in the law, it would seem that the Pharisees bypassed God's intention for marriage and the serious nature of divorce and simply went to the question of what were proper grounds for divorce. And here's where it gets really interesting. Two rabbis, men who had lived about 100 years before Christ, had given a very different interpretation of the divorce laws in Deuteronomy 24. According to Rabbi Hillel, Divorce should be possible for any and every reason. The indecency that Moses spoke of, according to Rabbi Hillel, was something in the woman that displeased her husband. Since Moses hadn't specified what that indecency was, neither should we, said Rabbi Hillel. A man can divorce his wife for any and every reason. For Rabbi Hillel, it was wide open. He would have agreed with present Canadian laws, except he was a sexist. This was for men only. The woman was left helpless. But there was an opposing position. A man named Rabbi Shammai taught that divorce was only allowable in the case of adultery. The indecency must, he argued, be the indecency found in the law. And because the law made so much about adultery, this is the uncleanness Moses referred to. So in Jesus' day, this was a live issue. Listen to Matthew 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? I hope you hear what they were asking him. In the matter of divorce, they said, Do you agree with what Rabbi Hillel said or with Rabbi Shammai? And it's this background that makes what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount so fascinating. Since he has been teaching that he has not come to abolish the law, and as there was a general disagreement as to what the law actually taught about the matter of divorce, as the Pharisees couldn't even agree with each other on the issue, what would Jesus say? Indeed, doesn't this sound very contemporary? This is the same fight we're having in the church today. What did Jesus say? Let's answer when we come back. As we begin to study what Jesus taught about this controversial subject, we recognize that even today it is one of the most hot-button issues for many within the church. Dr. Neufeld helps us understand how Jesus' teaching goes back to the original intent and purpose of the law regarding divorce and how the Pharisees again had got it all wrong. When we come back, we'll examine how Jesus responds to their question and learn what is permissible grounds for divorce. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Jesus then opened his mouth as he taught them the greatest sermon ever preached, known to you and me as the Sermon on the Mount. 2,000 years later, people are still reflecting, discussing, even challenging each other about its meaning and relevance. For the next five weeks, Dr. Neufeld walks us through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7 revealing the heart of what it means to be a true follower of Christ and the implications upon how we ought to live. Join us on this station every weekday, or if you miss an episode, you can catch up online at backtothebible.ca. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
Jesus was never shy about jumping into a controversial subject matter. He begins by affirming what the rabbis of his day had been saying. If you divorce your wife, the law requires that you give her a certificate of divorce. Perhaps the Pharisees said, we can't agree on what basis a man can divorce his wife, but we can all agree you have to formalize the matter by giving her a certificate. That allows her to get remarried without being charged with adultery. And that's what the common person heard. What was required for a divorce was a certificate. See, I'm amazed at how often we in our day have reduced the matter to that low common denominator. More than once in my pastoral career, I came upon someone who told me that once their divorce goes through, I'm going to be free to start dating again. Half of them already have someone they are dating, but they won't get engaged until the divorce goes through. Everything gets boiled down to a legal certificate, and in practical terms, that is the law of our country, and many evangelical Christians, although they might raise the occasional voice of protest, basically adhere to that principle around which all Pharisees and modern Canadians agree. But as we've seen before, Jesus responds to conventional wisdom with the words, but I say to you. Jesus thinks, because he is the one through whom all things were created, and that includes the creation of the institution of marriage, that what he says trumps every form of conventional wisdom. He has the final word on divorce and remarriage. So what does Jesus say? Well, first, we notice that he weighs in on the disagreement between Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. He argues that the indecency Moses spoke of is, in his words, sexual immorality. He allows divorce on the basis of sexual immorality. And so, for a moment, let's consider that phrase. What is meant by sexual immorality? Now, the Greek word used here is the word porneia. The older King James Version used the word fornication. The New International Version uses the term marital unfaithfulness. And, of course, I've been using the ESV, and it uses the word sexual immorality. I often hear people saying the word must refer to adultery, And yet, Jesus doesn't use the word adultery here, but rather the Greek word is porneia. So what is Jesus referring to? One of the key understandings to this word is to see it used in another context. And here I'm referring to 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. Paul writes the Corinthian church and says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality, or our Greek word porneia, porneia among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now, notice carefully how this verse reads. The Corinthian church had tolerated porneia, and then Paul adds, I'm speaking about a specific kind of porneia that's so extreme that even the pagans don't do this kind of porneia. And so it's easy to see that when the word porneia is used, it's a wide sweeping term that covers a variety of sexual misdeeds. That's why Paul has to specify what kind of porneia he's talking about. There is porneia among you, he says, and then let me define the specific kind of porneia that I have in mind. So that would lead us to believe that the word covers, as I've said, a wide variety of sexual sins. Let's also consider then 1 Corinthians 7 verses 1 to 2. Here Paul writes, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, there the word porneia is used, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Well, clearly here, when Paul uses the term porneia, he's not referring to incest, but he's referring to sexual relations between a man and a woman. Apparently, 
the only kind of sexual relationship one can have that is not porneia is within the marriage union. Hence, porneia refers to all sex that is outside of marriage. That includes incest. It includes fornication or sex before marriage. It includes adultery. It includes visiting temple prostitutes or visiting any prostitute for that matter. It includes homosexuality. It includes bestiality. It includes every way in which people engage in sex which is apart from the marriage bed. Indeed, in the law, Leviticus 18, an entire chapter highlights unlawful sexual relations. That entire chapter discusses all the forms that we would call unclean relationships and calls them an abomination before the Lord. And so Jesus is saying very clearly at issue is so much more than the certificate of divorce. At issue is the uncleanness Moses spoke of. It's found in Leviticus 18. This is the indecency one may find that destroys a marriage. And so he says it's not the certificate of divorce that ends the marriage. It is sexual immorality or porneia that ends ends the marriage. And by the way, that's why we should never say it didn't mean anything, or it was just a one-time thing, or I was drunk and I didn't know what I was doing. No, no, it's porneia, and it kills marriages. Now, to be clear, Jesus does not commit the mistake of the Pharisees. He does not say that porneia necessitates divorce. Rather, he says the law of God permits divorce on the ground of porneia. Now, I need to pause here and add my own pastoral comments. I have counseled more than one marriage in chaos because of porneia. A man visits prostitutes. A woman attended a gym and met men for sexual trysts. Someone had an affair with his or her work colleague. Each case is different. In some cases, the guilty party confesses, becomes transparent, and reconciliation is possible. In another, the guilty party minimizes. They say it didn't mean that much, or they lie to hide the issue. Each case is different. I found where there is a genuinely repentant heart, one can rebuild a marriage. But I hope you heard what I said. I referred to the guilty party. The party that commits porneia is 100% guilty. There is, in this case, an innocent party. You know, it's time we stop being muddle-headed about this. I can't imagine any reconciliation until the guilty party accepts that they are fully, 100% guilty of their actions. Now listen very carefully to Jesus. Everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. That is, in that society where a woman was dependent upon her husband, a divorce would necessitate a remarriage for her to survive. Leaving aside the question of the inherent sexism in that culture, the point is that remarriage constitutes adultery except when there has been porneia that has broken the marriage apart. In that case, remarriage would not constitute adultery. She would not be an adulterous woman. I hope you see that. Look at it this way. In the time of Jesus, according to the Mishnah, the formula that was stated on a bill of divorce said, Thou art free to marry any man. And so if Jesus affirms that divorce is permissible in the case of Pernea, then remarriage must also be permissible. And that's why when I hear of a woman whose husband left her for another woman, when she goes to remarry, Christian people must not condemn her, for our Lord does not condemn her. Now, one more thing. Is Jesus adding to the sexism of his day in which only a man could divorce his wife and not the other way around? 
Well, to be fair, Jesus does not address the issue here, but just so we understand, he places the blame solidly on the shoulders of the husband. You cause her to commit adultery if you unjustly divorce her. You're to blame for the situation she has found herself in. Now, if we had time to study the wider New Testament context, we might also look at the desertion of the unbelieving spouse. Nor have we time to deal with what has been called in the past cruelty. Now, I will talk on those matters when we study a Bible passage that speaks directly to those matters. But let me put the matter plainly in this context. For Jesus, marriage was a sacred thing and should not be broken. It was created by God, not by human convention. It was bedrock. And just because our culture says you're divorced does not mean that God says you're divorced. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. But it turns out God hates porneia as much as he hates divorce. Porneia is so vile that it breaks what could not otherwise be broken. Therefore, we are to honor God with our bodies. To break God's design for our sexuality is to destroy what God views as significant. Is there a way back? Yup, there's grace and throwing ourselves on the mercy of God. John, this is not an easy issue, the whole idea of divorce and and what's appropriate and what's not. But let's get back before then. The real issue, God hates divorce, but God hates adultery even more. Yeah, it's amazing how divisive this whole issue has become. And yet, I think one thing that I see so clearly in this text, exactly as you said it, Ben, I mean, it is immoral and wrong to break up a marriage, and that's what adultery does. It is so vile in God's sight that we need to see that God has taken such extraordinary means to pronounce his judgment upon our adultery. And if there's anything that should make married couples rethink what we think of as harmless flirting because it's not harmless, it has the possibility to destroy everything that's holy. It has a possibility to destroy your marriage. Well, divorce continues to be a hotly debated issue today. I hope that today's study has helped you understand a biblical view on the matter. To put it simply, Jesus hates divorce. And in the same way, we ought to take the issue very seriously. Let's continue to hold the institution of marriage in high esteem and strive to live in obedience to the Lord's teaching. Well, that wraps up this week in our series with Dr. John Newfeld. but tune in again next week for more great messages from Matthew chapter 5 to 7, the greatest sermon ever preached. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. In these challenging days, there are so many voices calling for our attention, but nothing is more essential than allowing our Bibles to speak to our lives and to be the compass that guides our choices and decisions. Psalm 119.105 reminds us, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Throughout 2021, we pray that the Bible would be your compass, guiding, encouraging, even challenging you in your walk with Jesus. Every resource we create and share with you is designed for that purpose, a trusted guide for your daily walk with Jesus. So tune in every weekday on this station or visit us online to discover all the different opportunities to access all the free Bible teaching resources available to you. So for more information, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-663. 
2425.